Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and welcome to Compliance Clarified, a podcast for risk and compliance professionals brought to you by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Each week we discuss news stories and topical issues from our journalists and analysts in the U.S., Europe, Asia, and Australia. I'm Rachel Wolcott, Senior Editor, speaking today from London, and with me is Helen Chan, our Regulatory Intelligence Expert based in Hong Kong. Hello, Helen. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me today. It's a pleasure. For this Episode 5 of Season 10 of Compliance Clarified, Helen and I are going to discuss the emergence of industrial-scale cryptocurrency money laundering its global reach and how regulators are responding to this phenomenon. So we have a lot to get through today. This is a big, big topic. Industrial scale money laundering originating in Southeast Asia's Mekong region has gone global. It's the infrastructure that handles the proceeds of pig butchering scams, child pornography, trade in human body parts, illegal gambling, drug trafficking, and people trafficking. Everybody should be concerned about this. Cross-border crime networks fueled by cryptocurrency are linking the world's most dangerous criminals and allowing them to scale up and automate money laundering. This activity is increasingly linked to terrorist financing as well as sanctions evasion. Criminal syndicates, mostly based in Southeast Asia, they've built crypto-based money laundering as a service networks upon their existing casino laundering networks, which Helen's going to talk a little bit more. These networks now operate far beyond the Mekong region where they originated. The United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime has established connections between underground and unregulated crypto exchanges online casinos, and organized crime groups globally. We're now seeing groups with links to Southeast Asia popping up in South America, Africa, the Middle East, and Eastern Europe, even on the U.S.-Mexico border. The work with South American drug cartels in some cases, according to U.S. reports, is offering drug traffickers instant payments for drug deliveries. Helen, tell us about the Mekong region and how it has become the epicenter of global money laundering. This is absolutely a story of the perfect storm, uh, the convergence of several enabling circumstances. The Mekong region, as you mentioned, covers six countries, and those are Cambodia, China, Laos, Myanmar, Thailand, and Vietnam. And these six countries share vast border in the Mekong region. Um, as you can imagine, there are varying degrees of economic and political stability among the six countries, and that in turn also affects border security. So you will have some areas where border security is quite robust and other areas where it is not so much. So the area that is of interest in this discussion about financial crime and about money laundering is some an area called the Golden Triangle Special Economic Zone. 
And that is where Laos, Myanmar, and Thailand share borders. This economic zone was initially created by the Laos government and Chinese investors with the aim of boosting economic development back in, I think it was 2007. Since then, the area has gained a reputation as a hotbed for illegality. Initially, when it was first created, this illegal activity mostly centered around drug trafficking and human trafficking. However, more recently, illegal casinos and cyber fraud have also become quite prevalent in the special economic zone, as well as just over the border of Myanmar in autonomous regions that are not under the control of any recognized government currently. So as you can surmise, regulatory supervision here in these areas is quite thin, close to non-existent. Separately, at the same time, a ban on cryptocurrencies in China dating back to 2021, and also a continued crackdown on junket operators and money laundering in Macau, which is very well known as the gambling enclave of the greater China region, has pushed a lot of some organized crime groups to relocate offshore. The Golden Triangle Special Economic Zone was sort of a natural home for these groups. Most of them were attracted by the sparsely supervised borders, um, high use unemployment, and also political instability. All of these factors really allowed these organized crime groups to evade enforcement and to capitalize on some of the criminal networks that were already in existence in the special economic zone. Adding to that, the border closures um, from the pandemic years were a time when movement of people and cargo were restricted globally, also within and around the special economic zone as well. These conditions created the need for organized crime groups to find other ways to generate income and to launder their illicit proceeds. So enter cryptocurrency at this stage, as well as online gambling websites and what now is very commonly referred to as pig butchering syndicates. In the previous season of Compliance Clarified, you and I talked about the massive profits that were being generated by pig butchering. These profits were, you know, running well into the billions of dollars. Um, that's just actually one piece of the criminal network that is operating out of this Golden Triangle Special Economic Zone. The scale of organized crime groups in the Special Economic Zone are actually attracting more attention to the online gambling aspect now and how these digital operations are enabling criminal organizations to simultaneously generate more income in higher volumes and also to launder illicit proceeds with greater efficiency. Yeah, that's right, Helen. And they've expanded really quickly beyond that region. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, it's, it's really astonishing how quickly this has moved. And I think something we're going to talk about later is how enforcement, apart from China and the U.S., are behind on this. So we've established, and this is set out in the uh, U.N. report, that Money laundering as a service using crypto has really grown out of these established laundering met networks based on the gambling enterprises. And uh, this is, like I said, set out in the UN report, the gambling enterprises are all over Southeast Asia, particularly in um, 
well, they were in Macau and the Philippines is another uh, big location for them. And we'll put a link to the UN report in, in the show notes. But crypto provides criminals with an easy way to move money around, particularly because exchanges, AML systems and controls are weak. And in some instances, no, no, your customer checks are required. It's easy for criminals to start up their own exchanges and it's easy to set up mule accounts on these exchanges. And apparently this is made all the easier because a lot of the criminal gangs have their own teams of IT experts to do all of this. In addition to the UNODC report, uh, another blockchain investigative group in Singapore called Chain Argos published a paper showing proceeds of pig butchering scams are using the same money laundering services, the same crypto wallets, and the funds end up in the same name brand crypto exchanges. Again, I'll put a link to the show notes to, to that paper. But what all this research has established is how crypto has allowed for a systematic, repeatable, and like you said, Helen, cheaper way to launder proceeds of crime. And one of the things that really comes out of the UNODC report and other work is how this is automated. Essentially, criminals can write code for algorithmic money laundering. I go more into this topic in a piece we just published, which again, we'll link to in the show notes. But apart from the UN report and a few others, I haven't really seen any regulator or law enforcement agency sound the alarm on this point about automation. It just makes everything so much easier, especially with these wallets. You can just write code and make everything happen automatically. And why should regulators and law enforcement be worried about this automated money laundering apart from the glaringly obvious? UNODC and others like ACAMS, Chain Argos, and Cryptegrity all point to Tether being the stable coin of choice for money launderers, particularly Tether on the Tron blockchain. If you can find an exchange with Lex, KYC, and there are many, it is easy to move funds around using Bitcoin and Tether without having to do any identity checks. The Lex KYC allows you to open as many accounts as you want. Then you write some code and hey, presto, you're up and running, laundering your proceeds from drug dealing, pink butchering scams, all these things that we've been talking about. And like I said, you can do it automatically. So by the way, Helen, the Tron blockchain is run by our old friend, Justin Sun, who we've also mentioned on previous podcasts, who is a senior advisor at HTX. And I think that takes us neatly um, to a discussion about uh, regulatory arbitrage that's helping exchanges and criminals expand their networks. Yes, it does. So, Rachel, you raised many good points about um, AML compliance and KYC standards at exchanges. Uh, I would like to highlight kind of a few other things uh, more in relation to the gambling and gaming industry and, and um, 
loopholes, arbitrage opportunities that could be taken advantage of by businesses or organized crime groups even. You know, as we all know, the regulatory landscape for cryptocurrency is still in development in many jurisdictions. And obviously, you know, the different kind of stage that everyone is at in the process creates opportunities for arbitrage. So, you know, in China, there's a total ban on cryptocurrency and, you know, we've mentioned has been in place since 2021. However, you know, occasionally we do still see news reports of some sort of underground operations, especially things like cash to crypto shops, which are very prone to money laundering risks. And and you will see reports here and there of that still happening. So there are still loopholes despite a total ban. Now, there are more crypto-friendly jurisdictions like Hong Kong, Singapore, and Dubai that are aggressively courting crypto growth. And these hubs have established or are in the process of establishing their own licensing regimes. The requirements and you know review processes to get a license in each of these jurisdictions vary. And you know, there are some nuances that can create opportunities for arbitrage. For example, most of these licensing regimes require virtual asset service providers to have responsible officers registered with the regulator. But it's actually not that clear in some jurisdictions, such as Hong Kong, whether these requirements apply to ultimate beneficial owners and especially you know, founders or stakeholders that control the business and the assets of the parent company. These are definitely things that matter when it comes to enforcement. Also, Rachel, you mentioned Huobi HTX. Um, I do think that HTX is an example where some of the opportunities for arbitrage can can sort of be used by potentially bad actors. So an HTX spokesperson, Justin Sun, has said in public remarks that HTX has applied for a license with the SFC to try deal in virtual assets and that they expect to be issued one imminently. Um, Meanwhile, HTX is already operating in Hong Kong. However, as has been widely reported, um, the company has had some skirmishes with regulators. This includes the parent company of HTX who will be being expelled from the Seychelles. Rachel, you you broke that news item. Um, And also the HTX subsidiary has also been kicked out of Malaysia on financial crime and compliance concerns. So, you know, meanwhile, you have the entity applying for a license, possibly being granted a license in one jurisdiction, but then being expelled from another jurisdiction on financial crime risks. Another point that I want to highlight is that the inconsistencies in regulatory supervision um, of anti-money laundering compliance also presents some opportunities for arbitrage, especially for gambling businesses. And this has been a focus area for the Financial Action Task Force. Generally, anti-money laundering compliance requirements for this category called uh, designated non-financial businesses and professions, short uh, DNFEP sectors, they are generally less robust than what is required of financial institutions like banks. DNFEP EPs include casinos, game businesses, and also businesses that run online gambling websites. Um, Money laundering and terrorism financing risks from DNFBPs have consistently been cited by SADF as major concerns, especially in relation to cryptocurrency money laundering. In response, SADF has pressured 
almost all of its member jurisdictions to raise anti-money laundering standards for DNFBPs. For example, the um, United Arab, Arab Emirates is expected to exit the Sanaf Gray List later this month. And one of the notable reforms that helped the UAE transition off this watch list was boosting regulatory reporting and compliance requirements for DNFBPs. That's really interesting because um, what I've been told is that uh, the UAE, uh, particularly Dubai, wants to uh, boost its presence in online gaming and gambling. And depending on who you talk to, some of the criminal element is already there. And on top of that, the gambling piece to this allows is another way that the money laundering networks run by organized crime groups can move really quickly. Uh, there have been reports in the UK about um, an Alvin Chow-linked group that's uh, based in the Isle of Man, regulated by the UK Gambling Commission, and it's doing the white labeling of online gambling sites it's unclear what response the UK Gambling Commission has had to the links between this company and Alvin Chow, who is a Macau gambling tycoon who's now in jail for violations related to all the things that Helen has just been talking about. So you'd think that would be a big red flag. Apparently not. But... Um, also talking about the UAE again, particularly Dubai, like I said, it's become another jurisdiction seeking to promote gambling and gaming. And it could become another outpost for the kind of laundering described in the UNODC report. On top of that, the, one of the, the most notorious organized crime groups, the Kinahans, which I think we've also talked about them in previous uh, podcasts, and they keep coming up. They've been based in Dubai for some time, although I'm told apparently they're wearing out their welcome. And they've also been sanctioned in 2022 by the U.S. related to their criminal activity, by the way. But one of the Kinahans, Daniel, he's one of the sons of uh, Christy Kinahan, has established himself as a boxing promoter and trainer so we get a little sports washing here in the mix as well. And as part of this, he, according to sources, wanted to launch his own cryptocurrency called Combat Coin. And that's with a K, of course. And it's still out there, um, but it ha hasn't been traded since it was launched, I think, in like 2021. You can see it on the Etherscan website. It was supposed to be linked to an online community for boxers and extreme fighters, but who knows what the purpose really was behind this this cryptocurrency. The point is, though, that organized crime far away from the Mekong region is using crypto. And the other point is that these organized crime groups, like the Kinahans, I have been working with sanctioned regimes like Iran to move cash, buy weapons, evade sanctions, etc. I don't think the Kinahans are related to uh, the North Koreans' Lazarus group, but other 
ones of these organized crime groups are. And obviously, there is some back and forth between North Korea and the Mekong region. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk a little bit about the regulatory response now, Helen. Sure, Rachel. So just two quick thoughts before we move on to that. Um, certainly private coins like this combat coin that uh, you mentioned have a lot of characteristics that some criminal organizations might be interested in to launder money. I mean, they offer anonymity and they're not really that easily traceable even on the blockchain. So there, like the, these types of instruments are quite prone to money laundering risks. And you mentioned sort of other groups using money laundering service networks. I recall sort of the UNODC report also mentioned that uh, they had observed instances where the Lazarus Group, which is affiliated with the North Korean government, had tapped into some of the networks in the Mekong region to launder illicit proceeds. Um, that certainly is is quite a disturbing observation, considering North Korean sort of state affiliated hacking groups stole something like in the ballpark of six hundred million dollars just last year alone um, in cryptocurrency. So kind of the volumes that we're seeing move through these networks are really high volumes and they are going to groups that are affiliated with things like terrorism financing um, and, and you know, human trafficking, drug trafficking, the like. And weapons proliferation. Yes, yes. Uh, financing weapons development. All those rather unpleasant things. Now, in terms of how regulators are responding, um, I think that there has been enforcement activity, but it's been fragmented and, you know, different jurisdictions are taking different approaches to it. Sort of across Asia, law enforcement agencies in China have conducted cross-border raids in Myanmar, um, also Cambodia, that resulted in mass arrests and repatriation of Chinese citizens for prosecution. In Singapore, Law enforcement conducted a fairly high-profile raid last summer where they seized over $2 billion in assets um, that they say were involved in suspected money laundering. Some of the suspects arrested are believed to be involved in operating illegal gambling websites and pig butchering syndicates in Myanmar. Something like three out of the 10 suspects that were arrested have been charged with money laundering offenses linked to online gambling operations in the Philippines as well. So in response to this raid, uh, the Singaporean Central Bank is looking at whether banks were involved in some of these money laundering operations. The Monetary Authority of Singapore has repeatedly warned regulated financial institutions on AML compliance in relation to crypto transactions. So it seems like the main focus of regulators there is on banks and, and looking at those kind of on-off wraps as well. 
Um, in Hong Kong, the Securities and Futures Commission is in the process of rolling out a formal licensing regime for virtual asset service providers. But uh, crypto firms can operate under a grace period while their application is being processed. That's kind of created a little bit of confusion over who who is, well, we know who is licensed. The SFC said that there's only one firm that has a license at this stage. But there is a lot of speculation around who has applied and is operating under the grace period and who has said they've applied and maybe not applied. Uh, so there there has been some confusion around that. Separately, in Hong Kong, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority has revised some customer due diligence and fraud alert requirements for banks to try to you know, minimize the risk of people falling, falling victim to pig butchering scams. Likewise, Singapore is reviewing its framework for bank liability for fraud loss. Uh, changing subjects and going over to the other side of the world, the United States has notably been very active with high-profile financial crime enforcement involving crypto businesses, especially exchanges, um, even though it hasn't been as active as some of the other jurisdictions in introducing policy and licensing regimes and whatnot. I think that you know the Binance enforcement for sanctions and AML violations is a quite good example of this. However, the regulation by enforcement approach in the United States has been quite controversial and, and you know has been quite harshly criticized as well, especially by the crypto industry. Yeah, well, we can definitely agree that when it comes to enforcement action on crypto, whether it's you know on mainstream exchanges like Binance or prosecuting crypto fraud, the U.S. has really been at the forefront. We haven't seen any enforcement on the scale of U.S. efforts in the U.K. or Europe, or Europe, but there have been some coordinated action on mixers through Europol, and I feel like this is where a lot of the uh, activity around organized crime and crypto is taking place. We're not seeing it as much or at all from the financial regulators, for example. Here in the UK, and I think in the EU, uh, we're taking similar steps to protect customers against uh, fraud, particularly APP fraud, which is the uh, push payment fraud, which will have dual liability for the sending bank and the receiving bank for the, for the fraud. And this this is really outside of the crypto space for the for the time being. What we've also seen that the UK and the EU have imposed uh, Magnitsky style sanctions on executives of sanctioned uh, casinos and junket operators for human rights and human trafficking violations related to pig butchering, which should put the financial services industry on alert for money laundering risk as well. But again, here in the UK and the EU, they're following the US lead. And I think part of the problem is, and you alluded to this talking about Hong Kong and Singapore, is that the EU and the UK want to attract crypto businesses to boost their economies. We, we've said this before. And this is my opinion. They're really having to balance this huge financial crime risk with the hope for economic benefits, 
which are remain elusive, also my opinion. So, like I say, there's I feel like there's this dance going on uh, between wanting to attract the crypto businesses and coming down with on them with penalty potential penalties and restrictive regimes. Um, we also have said repeatedly in the podcast that the customer onboarding is a huge problem. I mean, at some exchanges, this is not even debatable. There are concerns that they and the companies offering the fiat on-ramps are using KYC providers that are essentially designed to allow as many customers to be onboarded as possible. There are allegations that some of these providers, so the companies that do the identity checks and the screening, are in fact linked to organized crime groups, which I don't understand why this isn't being investigated. The other problem is deep fakes. These KYC providers' texts can be easily fooled by AI-generated IDs. Again, why aren't UK regulators and UE regulators looking at this? Maybe they are when firms come to them wanting to be licensed. This is something that really needs to be checked. And I've seen it over and over again. I did a piece in December about Russia and UK payment firms and, you know, their overlap with crypto and this onboarding designed to increase success was something that came up again and again. Uh, in terms of guidance, uh, you've mentioned the FATF guidance around crypto assets, which obviously is something that all firms should be following. And in the UK, we have the uh, JM. LSG guidance regarding cryptos and money laundering risks and compliance requirements. Now, I took a look this morning and it looks like the JMLSG guidance is not up to date with the current thinking regarding money laundering risk. It cites 2017 risk assessments that say money laundering risk with crypto assets is low. But I think we've established pretty comprehensively in our reporting and in this podcast that that is just wrong. It is extremely high. I think that's something that needs to be addressed. Helen, do you want to talk about your takeaways for compliance? Sure. I, I definitely agree with you, Rachel, in that the money laundering risk for crypto assets, um, cryptocurrency businesses, online gaming businesses that deal in cryptocurrencies is extremely high. Um, but what is sorely needed is a cross-border approach, an international approach, because, you know, from what we've discussed, cryptocurrency is not a business that can be bound by borders. And so having a cross-border approach is essential. But, you know, it, from a practical standpoint, that is very difficult, especially when you are talking about some of the countries in the Mekong region where they may not be as economically developed or you know, they may not have tapped into digital transformation as intensely as um, other regions. So those, those are all things that present 
challenges to enforcement, I think. Um, if I had one sort of major takeaway from all of this, I would say that financial regulators need to be very careful about handing out licenses um, for businesses to run virtual asset service services, things like exchanges and, and wallet services and custody and whatnot. Um, regulators in quite a few jurisdictions in Asia, especially Singapore and Hong Kong, have made investor protection an overarching objective of their virtual asset service provider licensing regimes. And what this has done is this has created a peace of mind assurance that is implicit in granting a license, especially to centralized exchanges that deal with retail investors. And so in that sense, the license itself actually offers a stamp of approval. And I think that there is a reputational and market integrity risk for regulators in awarding licenses. So regulators need to be very mindful of that when they are vetting applicants um, and also you know, take into consideration who the ultimate beneficial owners and controlling stakeholders are. So Rachel, what about you? What would your main takeaways be? Well, I will try to keep this short and sweet. Uh, my number one takeaway is if you're not already doing enhanced due diligence around any gambling exposure that you might have, you should be. It's well established that it is super high risk now, especially related to crypto. Uh, my number two is be careful with payment firms doing business with crypto if you have any exposure to them. These are the uh, firms that are providing the fiat on-ramps and off-ramps to crypto exchanges. Depending how good their systems and controls are, they may pose a heightened money laundering risk. And lastly, I think it's important to emphasize that thoughts are shifting in terms of how much transparency blockchain technology actually delivers in terms of crypto asset uh, transactions. Increasingly, transactions are taking place off-chain on an over-the-counter, peer-to-peer, bilateral basis. And this was a recurring theme in reports that officials now believe that the amount of illicit activity on blockchain or in crypto assets is much higher than previously believed, just because a lot of the activity is not registered on the blockchain. And um, that's a wrap from us. Thanks, Helen. Thanks, Rachel. And that's it. For this week's Compliance Clarified, your feedback is important to us, so please give us a rating on your podcasting platform of choice, or you can get in touch directly. Our contact details are in the show notes. For more information about regulatory intelligence, please search for Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence or check the show notes for a link. Thank you and goodbye. Compliance Clarified a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.